Psalm 122 on page 622 in the Church Bible. I rejoiced with those who said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Amen. What I'm just about to tell you is absolutely true. Um, there's reliable witnesses to this that I'm about to tell you. Um, it involves two members of this congregation. Um, and I'll use pseudonyms to protect them in a way because when I tell you about this, you may think that these people are poetic geniuses. You may think these people are the heirs of Baron. On the other hand, you may think these people just have too much time on their hands. You may think, what are these people doing with their lives? You may think, why aren't they working harder? Um, why aren't they looking after their families more? Um, I'll let you decide, but I'll use pseudonyms just to protect them. Um, most Friday evenings we play snooker, and over the last oh, year or so, We've had a little email that goes around to those that are playing snooker just to say, are you playing? Yes, no. Um, Eight o'clock, who's booked the table, etc., etc. Very quick, very straightforward. Um, Last three or four months, um, there's been one or two that are on this list that have got rather poetic. And this is what happened on Friday as I picked up my email. Um, For the sake of argument, pseudonym will call this person S. Don Levy. Um, no need to wonder who that might be Um, it's called In The Zone it says I'm pumped, raring to go ready to put on a snooker show all you can do is stop and admire with your heart's desire watch the magic unfold before your very eyes red, black, red, black, red, black is he Steve Hendry in disguise bring all you've got bring the lot it still won't be enough to beat the Don unbeaten for so long that's not actually true (laughs) So who is brave and willing to go to watch Steve Don's magic snooker show? Um, And in reply, um, again, completely pseudonym, we'll call this person Caleb Thomas. um, And they replied, I'll be there to spoil the Don's show. They call me the hurricane, so I'll have to go. I'll let you decide about what you think about that. In a way, you could say that that's a kind of a waffly, uh, long-winded way, a kind of flowery way um, of getting to the facts. Um, the facts is, are you coming or you're not? And this is a rather kind of long-winded, flowery way of saying that. And when we come to psalms in general, and to this psalm in particular, we may think, 
our immediate reaction may be that the psalmists quite often seem a bit flowery, it seems to be a long-winded way of getting to the facts. And in a sense, Psalm 122, we might kind of think, well, is he just saying, I enjoy church today, full stop, but has used nine verses to say that in a way. And we might think that actually, what is this all about? All this different languages, flowery languages, kind of potentially long-winded way. And I think sometimes we can come to the Psalms like that, and certainly um, I sometimes struggle with Psalms to kind of see exactly what's going on and why different imagery is used and things. So this evening what I want to do is just look at kind of very briefly what poetry and verse and song um, might be useful for us in general, um, then to explore what maybe a Jewish person two to three thousand years ago might have made of this particular psalm, the kind of images and the ideas that are there. And then to explore two key ideas that I think are kind of smuggled in in this imagery um, and how they might be very helpful for us this evening as 21st century Christians in the Western world. So to look at poetry, verse and song in general to start off with, exploring the poetry and what it might mean to a Jewish person two to three thousand years ago in this particular psalm, 122, and then to explore two key ideas smuggled, in, smuggled into the imagery that might be helpful to us. I must go down to the seas again, to the lonely sea and the sky, and all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by, and the wheels kick and the wind's song and the white sails shaking, and a grey mist on the sea's face, and a grey dawn breaking. I must go down to the seas again, for the call of the running tide, it's a wild call, and a clear call that may not be denied. And all I ask is a windy day, with the white clouds flying, and the flung spray and the blown spume, and the seagulls crying. I must go down to the seas again, to the vagrant gypsy life, to the gull's way and the whale's way, where the wind's like a wetted knife. And all I ask is a merry yarn from a laughing fellow rover, and a quiet sleep and a sweet dream when the long trick's over. That's a poem by John Macefield. Um, you may have heard it, you may not have. But in a sense, that poem is probably a truer description of the sea and what the sea is about than the mere facts about the sea. In a way, that poetry connects us not just with the facts about the sea, being on the sea, being by the sea, but it connects to our emotions and our imagination. And in a sense, it gives us a truer description of the sea. It gives us a more complete description of the sea because it doesn't just engage our minds, it engages our emotions and our imagination. On top of that... Um, for me and members of my immediate family, this will have a greater significance because virtually every holiday that we went on, um, as soon as we got down to the sea for the first time, we were all very excited, we were raring to go, we wanted to get out there, make our sandcastles, it was fantastic, you could feel the sea breeze. But often before we would get out of the car, my dad would start to recite the first <laughs> paragraph, the first lines of this sea fever. Um, and so there's a mixture of this sea fever telling us a lot about the sea, encapsulating a lot about the sea, but also there's some actual memories of myself being in a car just raring to get out 
And it being fun, because Dad was larking about, this is probably the only bit of poetry he knows. Um, and so there's just kind of, there's a concrete sense of my experience all embedded within this bit of poetry. And that's what verse and poetry can do. It can connect us with experience. It can t- connect us with the truth that maybe goes beyond just the facts, beyond reason. And then we also see, before we even get to this psalm, and a lot of the psalms as well, that actually it's a song. There's probably music um, to go along with this. And in a sense, music adds a further dimension of reality, of connection with things like emotion and imagination, and possibly gives us an even greater sense of the truth of something. And probably most of us will have heard of either Bob Dylan or U2 or Morrissey or somebody that we um, quite like. He's a popular artist. And we actually find that actually the connection between the clever words that they use but also the music actually gives us a further dimension in terms of expressing something real and true. Um, and I just want to, in a second, just play um, something from Pink Floyd. Um, it's called Eclipse. It's the last track on the dark side of the moon. And I'm not even sure what this particular song means. I think um, it's talking about the fact that death actually makes everything futile. At the very end it says that the sun is eclipsed by the moon. And my interpretation of that is that's talking about the futility of life because death basically supersedes everything. And if there isn't a God, if there isn't something after death, then It's just futile and meaningless. The words are quite straightforward. It says, all that you touch, all that you see, all that you taste, all you feel, all that you love, all that you hate, all you distrust, all you save, all that you give, all that you deal, all that you buy, borrow or steal, all you create, all you destroy, all that you do, all that you say, all that you eat, everyone you meet, all that you slight, everyone you fight, all that is now, all that is gone, all that's to come. And everything under the sun is in tune, but the sun is eclipsed by the moon. And I just want to just play this now and just see what it adds to those words, the actual music behind it. Just have a little listen. It's only about a minute or so. Thank you. 
think the music adds something more to just the words about the sense of futility um, of all that happens in life if death then occurs and there's nothing else. And in a sense, when we come to the Psalms, particularly Psalms that are songs that have music associated with them, there's these two aspects that are going on. Uh, This aspect of engaging with our imagination and our emotions alongside the facts about what the psalmist is trying to convey. And so in Psalm 122, um, we have the start of it. I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. And the psalmist here is not talking about uh, a weekly going to church. That's more like um, a Jewish person two to three thousand years ago going to the synagogue, their local place of worship. This is going to Jerusalem, this is going to the temple, this is going into the very place of God and was a very special thing um, and a thing that involved probably a long journey. It may be something that they've done very infrequently, maybe even once just in a lifetime. So this was a big, big thing, going and meeting, in a sense, with God in the temple. This was an incredible thing. And this has been built up as a sense of expectation and excitement. And he's rejoicing here. He's rejoicing. There's praise. There's celebration. There's an anticipation, and now they're there. Now they're there, standing in the gates of Jerusalem. And in a way, um, for a Jewish person two to three thousand years ago, there would have been no separation between the day-to-day life, what you did in your normal life, and what you did in church life, and what you did elsewhere. They were all one in the same thing. They wouldn't have known about celebration without the idea of celebrating with God. Uh, everything that they did um, was a unified whole, as it were, in terms of devotion and worship to God if they were obeying the law as they should. And so this celebration of going up to this temple would have just been very natural, absolutely natural for them to just completely enjoy this, just to have loved this thing of going up and meeting with God in this special way, feeling his presence in a in a different and special way. And what the psalmist does here is then use the idea of the city of Jerusalem as a concrete, vivid example to engage the imagination about things about God, things that we can know for sure about God, they're facts about God, but hopefully engages our imagination and our feelings about what it's like to know some of these aspects of God. And one of the first things he's talking about, he's standing in the gates of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. And Jerusalem and being inside the walls of Jerusalem for somebody two to three thousand years ago in Palestine would have been a very big sense of safety and security. We've made it to a place of safety and security. Um, we probably don't have that sense at all anymore because we don't have bandits out trying to kill us on the road from 
Tame to Long Crendon. There is no, if you walk from Tame to Long Crendon, you're unlikely to get attacked by bandits and killed um, in this day and age. We don't have the kind of chaos and disorganisation outside of cities and big towns. It's, we've got the whole of our place in the UK is civilised in a way, and so we don't get that sense of when we get somewhere and we're safe. We're safe in this city. We no longer need to be afraid. And he's standing actually in the gates, so almost these thick walls, he's underneath them, it's the most safe kind of feeling this person can have. We've made it to the safety and the security of this city. We no longer need to be afraid. This city can be trusted, can be trusted to keep us safe and to save us from those things that could harm us. And the psalmist here is using this image of Jerusalem and the safety of Jerusalem to tell us about the safety that we have in God, the security that we have in God. God can be absolutely trusted. He is absolutely safe, both in this world and when we die. If we have put our trust in Jesus, he is absolutely safe. Absolutely And the psalmist here is engaging with things that a Jewish person would have known about, that sense of relief to be safe. Goes on and talks about the the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David, very concrete examples of justice, of fairness, of things being right. And again, 21st century UK, we have pretty good access to justice. We have pretty good access to the law, to judges, to judgment. Um, and okay, it's not ideal in every situation, but we have access to that. There aren't pockets of the UK where it's just mayhem and chaos and injustices occur and there's no retribution, there's no punishment, there's no fairness. But in Palestine, in two to 3,000 years ago, there would have been places where there would have been this chaos. And to have this sense of fairness and judgment and justice would have been, again, a great thing for these pilgrims to be having this concrete example of. And again, he's trying to draw us to um, having a kind of an emotional engagement with the fact that God is absolutely fair and absolutely just. And then he goes on to talk about um, that Jerusalem is a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the law, to praise the name of the Lord, according to the statute given to Israel. There's a sense of fellowship and unity in this city with these fellow pilgrims, these fellow people going to praise God. So there's a number of images in this psalm that the psalmist is helping us engage with the right emotions that we could feel about God, about security and justice and fairness and the fellowship that we have with fellow travellers along the way. And in a sense, I'd like you just to imagine a concrete example that may have some, some slight analogy or might be slightly helpful. I just want to imagine that somebody knocks on your door one day, you're alone in the house, um, this person knocks at the door, um, you haven't seen them before, but they're somehow really familiar and um, 
They're a chap in his late 20s, early 30s, just with a T-shirt and jeans on. And there's just something about him. And you just know that this person is Jesus. Jesus has come to visit you. And he chats and says, do you fancy a pint or do you fancy a glass of wine? Let's go to the local pub. And so you go to your local pub, the pub that you most like going to or the coffee shop that you most like going to, somewhere that you're completely familiar with. And you're talking with Jesus. He buys you a drink. He gives you a glass of wine or a pint of bitter. He has bitter himself because that's obviously what Jesus would drink, probably London Pride or something like that. Um, and you're chatting away and it feels just feels relaxed. It feels intimate. There's a warmth with this person, Jesus. And you know that he knows everything about you. You know that he can see into your very deepest part of you, all those hidden things that nobody else maybe ever sees. And he can see them and he knows them and yet he still likes you. You're still having a nice time with him and he's interested in you. And he's enjoying your company. And you talk about all kinds of things and you're just left with that sense that this Jesus, he absolutely knows me. He knows all my deepest, darkest faults and weaknesses and yet he loves me. He just likes me. This is just nice. And at the end, he says it. He says, I've really enjoyed having a chat with you. It's been absolutely fantastic. And I do, I really like you. And I just want to say, keep trusting in me. Just keep trusting in me, even when it's hard. Even when I don't seem to be around. Just keep trusting in me. And I'll see you. I'll see you around. Just imagine that. Just imagine what that pub, if you wrote about it, would feel like what kind of emotions and images might come to mind if you were to write a psalm about that pub and what that meant to you. Well, if you're not a Christian here this evening, I want you to imagine maybe that you have that same encounter with Jesus and you know that he loves you and you know that he knows everything about you. But he also says to you, but gently and firmly and towards the end of the conversation, he just says, you know you need to be forgiven by me, don't you? You know that deep down. You know that you really do need to trust me. You know that you don't need to carry those regrets anymore. You can give them to me. But I'll need everything from you. I won't let you down. You can trust me. And what I ask you to give up, you'll get back a million times over. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? In a sense, in both those scenarios, we may conjure up kind of images and emotions that are actually quite close to the actual facts. Because the reality is that Jesus does say those things to us if we're trusting in him or if we've not yet trusted in him. And in a sense, that's what these psalms attempt to do, to engage us in those kinds of thoughts. And so just coming to two key aspects that I'd just like to draw out um, for us to take away. First one says, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. They're rejoicing. There's joy, there's enjoyment. It's a good time. And in a sense, when we're in that state of praise, enjoyment, joy, having a good time in God's presence as it were, in a sense, that's a truthful, emotional and accurate response to the person of God, to the beauty of God, 
to the nature of God. In a sense, God demands that, demands that response from us. Not in a way that he's sitting there saying, oh, you must worship me, you must praise me because it will make me feel good. But almost in the same way that a fantastic sunset demands us to appreciate it. Somebody that we absolutely love demands that we respond in an incredibly appreciative way. In the same way that when we see Stephen Gerrard score a wonder goal against Hungary, um, it demands, in a way, an emotional response or a response of joy and celebration. A fantastic meal, a great wine, beauty within nature, in a sense, demand, demand that response. And God, the closer we get to the truth of God, the more we realise that that's what he demands of us in a way. And in a way, praise and celebration actually completes the enjoyment. It completes the enjoyment we have in God. And I don't know if you've done travelling recently, but... Most people, when they travel or go abroad or go on holiday, like to go with somebody, partly because of the experiences and the things that they see and the things they discover and what happens to them, they want to share. They want to share that praise and that enjoyment. It completes the thing. It completes the thing. To glorify God is the chief object of man. But there's a second thing that's kind of smuggled into this imagery in verse 4, that is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel, according to the law given to Israel. There is an obedience to a command that we have. There is a sense of duty in doing the things that we know God wants us to do, whether we feel like it or not whether we feel the joy and the praise that is the right response to God in a way, but whether we feel it or not, there we have a clear indication that there is also a duty if our feelings are not in line with what might be the best response to God. And for some people, probably their feelings very rarely get to that state. Um, for other people, their feelings and their emotional responses may be quite a lot of the time um, responding to God in a sense of joy and praise and enjoyment. In a way, that doesn't matter. Because this second part of the theme is that there is a willful obedience to God. The mundane, just in the same way that the Jewish person two to three thousand years ago, there wouldn't have been a difference between his Monday everyday life and the things of God. They were fused together. There wasn't any difference essentially between the mundane and the marvellous. So when we tend to church, just because it's a good thing to do, it's the right thing to do. When we have our quiet times, just because it's the right thing to do. When we willfully obey that voice that says we should go to our home group this week. Or doing whatever we've been given to God unto God looking after our family unto God, being a good student unto God, being a good person in our workplace unto God, showing kindness unto God, partying unto God, going to the pub unto God, 
celebrating unto God. These are the things that we can do through willful obedience with God's help, with the help of the Holy Spirit. And it may be, it may be that this willful obedience, that's this side of what the psalm is talking about. It's like digging channels in a waterless desert in anticipation of when the rain comes. We're ready. We're ready for when the feelings do match with the facts, the facts of our salvation, the facts of the love of God, the facts of the grace that we've received if we've put our trust in Jesus. Or it may be it's like we're tuning our instruments, and it doesn't sound great, but there is an obedience in tuning our instruments in anticipation of the symphony, the symphony that will come, that will be played. Or maybe it's keeping on the right path, doggedly, determinedly, willfully, with God's help, even when the signposts, the map, the sat-nav doesn't seem to be anywhere near around. So I think there's two helpful images for us in this psalm. This image of our right emotional response to God, the demand that God has for who he is, but also the acknowledgement that actually we need. We need just duty and obedience at times, and for some that will be the vast amount maybe of their Christian life. They may only get small glimpses this side of eternity of the whole picture or the greater truth of that engagement of our emotions and our imagination with the facts of our salvation and who God is. So I think as Christians maybe um, we should not denigrate singing and praising at all. Maybe we should pay more attention to the CDs of worship songs or CDs that help us to engage both our knowledge and our understanding as well as our feelings and our imagination. Maybe when we read the Shack, a fictional account of God, actually that may give us, in a sense, a broader truth about God than reading an introduction to systematic theology because it engages something broader within us. I think within the psalm it's encouraging us not to separate the mundane from the marvellous, that actually in our Christian lives there will be many times, maybe the majority of the time, when it's willful obedience with the help of God. But when we do find that actually we have that engagement with our emotions, our imagination, and we are rejoicing and praising and full of that adoration of God, that that actually is, in a sense, what God demands, just as the right response to the truth about him. But it's for us not to worry if our feelings, where they come or go, there's not a great deal we can do about our feelings a lot of the time. The fact remains, the fact remains that if we've put our trust in God and we are walking with him, that actually we are saved through grace. That's the fact that's the fact, whether we feel it all the time, a little bit of the time, or rarely. And if we're not a Christian here this evening, if you haven't made that step of commitment to Jesus, in a sense, that image of Jesus sitting in that pub, chatting with you, and you knowing that he loves you, knowing that he likes you, Knowing that he's interested in you, 
even though he knows everything about you, all your regrets, all those hidden things, all those things that deep down you know maybe you need to be right with God with, he is saying, trust me, you need to be forgiven by me. You need to give over your regrets to me. It will be okay. I won't let you down. And what I ask you to give up really will be outweighed a million, million, million times over in terms of what you receive from me. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Amen.